So it's with great pleasure that we welcome to the pod four times world squash champion, eight times British Open winner, Dame Susan DeVoy. Susan, I imagine there'd be worse places in the world to spend a lockdown in than the Bay of Plenty. How's it been for you? I've been pretty lucky, actually. I'm here, I live in the Mount, in Mount Monganui, and the weather's been amazing, hasn't it, during this period? So um, I've got no complaints. I'm stuck in a, well, I was stuck in a bubble uh, with my husband, John, and uh, one of our sons came home. Uh, I'm not sure. We weren't all entirely sure how that would go, but it's been great, actually. But, uh, <laughs> you know, difficult for a young person, I suppose, to be cooped up with their mum and dad for a long period of time. Um, it's actually coming up a couple of years now since you ended your time as race relations conciliator. So what have you been doing in that time? What are you doing these days? Well, that's a good question. Um, well, when I finished, I went to Melbourne. John was working there, my husband. He'd been, he was finishing a um, period of time running a business in Australia, and then they transferred him back to New Zealand, which was fantastic. Uh, so I'd like to say we've just got back, but actually we've been back a very long time, probably coming up a year, and I've done very little. Um, uh, well, it seems to be very little. Uh, and it's actually interesting that this period of lockdown has thought has made me think, well, I'm probably too young to retire just yet, um, and probably time to get some mojo back and go and look for something, but um, it's a whole different world now, isn't it? So, um, yeah. You know, who knows? Um, I do a lot of volunteering in, um, in the local community. I've got very involved with some of the homeless groups here. Uh, there's always stuff to keep you busy. Um, but like a lot of people, my intentions this year was to travel. Our son graduated just for the weekend in the States. That trip was cancelled. Um, I was hoping to go to the World Squash Masters in Poland in August. That's been cancelled. Um, I mean, they're not bad things or things, yeah. but they certainly change your life you know we all some of us are wandering around now wondering what the earth we're going to do with ourselves i mean life's full of challenges i'm sure you're looking forward to your next one uh, let's go back to the beginning you, you grew up in rotorua much has been made of the fact that you were the youngest of a big family six brothers but uh, tell us about the influence of your parents um, from what i can understand very community-minded people yeah yeah i mean my earliest recollections of you know, squash starting was really being piled into the car on a, on a weekend and traveling with my brothers. I wasn't allowed to play, I was too young. Um, and my brothers and my parents liked to um, socialize after the games. And um, so there was a lot of time spent with my family drinking in the bar. I wasn't allowed to do that either. So I used to spend time filling in time by hitting squash balls, um, you know, on the spare courts for often very long periods of time. So you know, rumour has it, or people tell me that, you know, everyone used to say, well, the last thing in the world that that young girl, boy girl, want to do is play squash, that's for sure. But, you know, we all, um, it was something we did as a family. Um, my brothers first started playing the Brownlee Centre that was built in Rotorua. Yeah. Uh, as an alternative to playing tennis, I think, when it rained. Um, my parents, I can never remember my parents playing, but apparently they did. Um, and my brothers played all sorts of sports. So, you know, I was never going to, Back then, back then, never play cricket or rugby, of course, and we've changed, thankfully. Um, so, yeah, it became, it was a real community um, and family involvement for all of us. Yeah. Uh, your dad was an accountant. Your mum, Tui, a woman of great character. Uh, she was, yes. Everyone has a Tui story to tell. Um, and, and a hard worker, you know. Um, my mother worked 
you know, she held the family together. I went to daycare, I think, when I was about six weeks old. Um, she helped run my father's business. She was the night porter at the, the Brett's Hotel. She ran the post office, post office at, uh, at Walker. And I mean, yeah, and, and they knew everyone in town. So we were, you know, part of the community, of course. Oh, well, at least working at the hotel, you, you'd get a free swim there, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you remind me of that story. My mother used to take me along to the hotel and um, it was the international in those days and uh, she would take us along and we would swim in the hot, beautiful hot pool there and she would set over a beer and she would t- tell us, remind us that if anyone asked us, because it was only supposed to be guests there, if anyone asked us, you know, what we were doing there, just say that we were staying and I thought, oh, that was a bit funny when everyone knew who my mother was, but that was okay. She liked to, uh, she thought she had special privileges in town. You, you mentioned the six brothers. Um, you know, were you? Um, or did they protect you? Were they dote on you, or was it a case for you of uh, get tough or go unnoticed? Well, you know, my oldest brother. There was, you know, he was nineteen years older than me, and so he'd left home when I was born. Um, we lived in the state house in Rotorua, and there was one room that had six beds in it, and then there was my parents' room, and then mine. <laughs> And I got to share with one brother who was supposedly supposed to be studying for the National Court exams of that year or whatever. Um, but yes, they, they, I think they doted on me probably as I got a little older, but they always treated me as if I was forever 10 or 11, not when I was a teenager or 20 or whatever. Um, and very competitive, you know, I mean, they, um, you know, if I wanted to play any sport with them, I had to be able to, you know, I had to sort of practice until I could bowl a ball straight or, you know pass the ball properly or do whatever and uh but yeah I mean I think you know they taught me a lot about what not to do as well as what to do actually as you go up the ranks because I saw firsthand what happens when you've got plenty of talent and ability but you uh, don't knuckle down and or don't play by the rules (laughs) um so yeah I had good good and bad role models within my own family but um yeah yeah that was proud of punch their little sister I think yeah. So you went to uh, St Mary's School, then MacKillop College, although I, I think it's fair to say um, that you didn't exactly uh, walk out of the education system in a blaze of glory. No, no. I was in my last year at school and I came back one weekend from having played a tournament. One of the nuns had said to me, um, you know, I haven't done my assignment, what did you do? Asked a silly question, really. She said, are you more interested in playing squash or, or you know, being at school? And I thought, well, that is a silly question, actually. <laughs> um, I got up right there and then picked up my bag and left and never went back again and I was too scared to tell my parents that I'd left school. Um, left school that I never attended very much anyway but they didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> that, I used to get, that I used to get dressed in my school uniform for about nearly three weeks and hide under the house until both my parents had gone to work. Um, my, father, my father at that stage was so bitterly disappointed that his only daughter was not going to university. You know. And we're talking in the early 80s, and it wasn't the dumb thing to become a professional sportswoman. Um, and it certainly wasn't the dumb thing to become a professional sportswoman squash player. So, um, but yeah, they um, they helped me find a job as a, well, I got my own job actually as a builder's labourer. Um, I seem to have this common theme throughout my life of working in male-dominated, um, you know, environments. <laughs> I was the only female there with about 60 blokes in there. Um, and I saved all the labour, but really I just made the tea um, and, um, and learned a whole lot of other skills. So, yeah, that gave me enough money really to go away at the end of that year. Um, oh, I wasn't, that wasn't my first trip, but I did go away uh, with my first overseas trip to the World Champs 
in Toronto, but that gave me, made me, earned me enough money to get an airfare to England. Yeah, they, they say timing has a lot to do with it in sport, and and I guess you probably picked a pretty good time to be coming into the game. Sport was, uh, sorry, squash was transitioning from what had been a very popular social sport into one that had become a really competitive sport in New Zealand. We had some great world class players. Um, the competitive scene in New Zealand was good, and I, I suppose from that came a few opportunities to travel around the country um, and and play in some tournaments here and in, and uh, I think at age group level in Australia as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that was some of the, I suppose, the motivations. Um, and it was certainly a boom sport, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And I'm lucky, grateful for that. It's certainly not like that in New Zealand now, although the rest, some of the places in the rest of the world is different. But, yeah, I mean, that was as much about as a juniors. You know, we would pack buses for you as a waiting list. You know, we'd go to Palmerston North or Auckland or whatever. And, you know, people would be queuing up to get in to play in the tournaments. And then I... I was on my first overseas trip when I was 15, actually. Um, I went to Australia for the, to the Gold Coast. I mean, it's pretty exciting when you've never been out of the country to go to the Gold Coast. Um, and then at 17, I was chosen in the New Zealand women's team to go to Toronto. So, yeah, I mean, looking back now, those were amazing opportunities. And it was after that trip to Toronto that I really decided that's what I wanted to do. And I was going to go to the UK and, you know, try and be a, a, a professional or try and be a world champion, actually. I mean, not only was the sport very popular, it was, it was pretty well run in those days uh, and there was investment in the sport. And I think one of the key things that they did uh, was encourage a, a fellow by the name of Dadia El-Bakari, who, who had been a great player, an Egyptian player who was becoming a, a world-class coach. And they got him to come and live in New Zealand and, and take over, I guess, running the whole coaching system in New Zealand. How, how important was that, both for you personally and for the development of the game here, that Dardia came here? Well, funny you should talk about that because we've been, um, we're in the process of reviewing high performance in New Zealand squash at the moment, you know. We've probably had a bit of a crossroads with Paul and Joel, but, you know, like all smaller sports, struggling a little bit. And I did mention that um, I went to a funeral just before lockdown of a gentleman called Bryden Clark here, and he lives who lived here in the mountain, passed away, who was instrumental in bringing Dardia to New Zealand. And I said, you know, that was a game changer for all squash players in New Zealand. I mean, bringing someone with those skills um, to New Zealand and, and not just his skills and his ability to teach the game, it was the fact that he was such a charismatic character. And um, God, he spent some time at our house. Um, <laughs> he was the only person I knew that could eat a whole chicken, bones included. <laughs> In one foul swoop. Um, so, yeah, Dadia was, you know, I mean, he was like God to us in the squash world. And I used to, my parents used to take me up and we'd stay with Dadia. And he used to flat with a guy called John Edwards. And I was only young and the house was called Lack of Nookie Lodge. <laughs> but I had, a, I had no idea what that meant until I was in my teens. You know, everyone used to laugh at that. And they would ask me what I'd say. And I'd say, well, we're staying at Lack of Nookie Lodge. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, obviously later on I was, that was explained to me. But yeah, um, but we need something like that now in New Zealand again because the game has changed um, and it's dominated by the Egyptians, ironically. And not that they're the only best players in the world or the best coaches, but sometimes you have to step back and say, well, have we changed enough as well? And do we need, we're not in a position to have a full-time national coach here, but can we bring some expertise to New Zealand or send our coaches overseas 
um, to give our young players the best opportunities to you know, put it with the rest in the world. Uh, but saying that, Paul Cole and Joelle um, have done incredibly well. I think Joelle was the outstanding player of the Commonwealth Games, um, you know, of any sport really. And uh, Paul Cole is a phenomenon from Greymouth, you know. Yeah. Um, so when we say you can't do it or whatever, it's not true. But, you know, they've done it themselves. You know, it's not, no one else can take any glory for that. But it's fantastic to see them, uh, you know, still keeping squash on the world stage for New Zealand. Sure. Another thing that's changed since then is, is funding. And I, I know that apart from the... Uh, the, the I'm not sure you've got enough time to talk about funding. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I mean, I won't get angry. <laughs> you, you got a grant. Um, or we've got some assistance from the Sports Foundation that help you go off. The system now seems to be all about rewarding achievement. And if sports don't measure up, they lose their funding. Uh, have, have we got it around the wrong way suddenly? Or have we just haven't got the balance right, perhaps? Well, it's only my opinion and people, plenty of people will disagree. But I, um, I think it's really difficult. So I got money from the Sports Foundation at a young age, you know, when I hadn't proven myself. <coughs> And so it was a punt, you know, but it made the difference. It was the difference between me either staying in New Zealand or being able to afford to go overseas. And if I didn't go overseas, I was never going to get any better. So that was amazing. I remember Stuart Davenport got offered a grant from the Sports Foundation. He turned it down, you know, because he said, I don't, I'm not going to make it. And I'm not going to be the best squash player in the world. Give it to someone else who deserves it. Can you imagine anyone in New Zealand these days? Yeah. Groundbreaking. The Sports Foundation did that. They 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 invested in people, um, you know, to get them to the top. These days, it seems, well, firstly, if you're not an Olympic sport in New Zealand, you've got deadly squat of getting anything. So, you know, based on the performances of Joelle and Paul at the Commonwealth Games, squash got an extra $25,000, which is minimal. And most of the high-performance funding that squash gets goes to Joel and Paul and that's fine too but there's nothing there to develop the rest of our players so in many ways they contradict themselves I believe because they're saying we want children to participate in sport and we know that the numbers are dropping that children are not playing organized structured sport anymore you know and that's fine that's what they choose to do but does it mean that they're still being active and why are they not doing that um, and we're looking at the ways that you know, people coach and people parent and doing all sorts of things. But in the next breath, our high performance are paying lots of money to people who have already made it. You know, so you might say we're just buying medals. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, um, it, you know, there's no easy answer to it, but I think you're going to have an either a dark of people coming through because they can't afford it. I mean, we have a son who's a middle distance runner who was trying you know, um, trying his very best and no one trained harder and whatever and to qualify for the Olympics as a middle distance runner um, who hasn't had a cent from Athletics New Zealand, you know, and so it's mum and dad have to keep supporting that because you can't work full time and train and um, and the bank of mum and dad is closing very soon. So <laughs> <laughs> if anyone out there from Athletics New Zealand is listening, <laughs> um but it's not just about money either. You know, it's, money is just part of it. It's having, um, you know, being supported and having other things. And if you choose to go to college or not base yourself in New Zealand necessarily, those things obviously aren't, uh, you know, available. But 
you know, it's a bit of a conundrum um, and I don't have all the answers, but difficult times ahead with everything that's happened and yeah. uh, I hope that, you know, um, all the good things that come out of sport aren't, you know, are still able to, I mean, here they're making a difficult decision about the Ames games right at this very moment. Yeah. Um, those are the things that are sad to see that probably won't won't go ahead at least this year. Yeah. Well, you know, in 17, uh, you decided to go professional. And, you know, you talk about how difficult it is now, even with that support. I mean, you had to take yourself off the other side of the world. No support crew. I mean, you, you, you're pretty much on your own, were you? Yeah, yeah. I don't think I had a really um, a proper understanding of what was actually going to be like. You know, I thought that flying to Heathrow was a bit like catching the bus from Rotorua to Auckland, you know. <laughs> um, and then I probably unrealistically thought that I was going to be pretty good overnight, you know, an overnight sensation. Um, but the reality was it was, um, you know, I stayed with my greatest rival of all times, Lisa Ropey, for a short period of time in, uh, in Nottingham. Um, she kindly put me up, which didn't necessarily go all that well. Um, <laughs> but the thing is that you go to a tournament, you get billeted or put up in a hotel for as long as you're in the tournament. Well, for the first six tournaments in a row, I got put out on the Friday night. You know, I lost. I lost my first round game. I think I played Vicky Carter every single round. Um, and then after that, you have to fend for yourself. So, you know, I I have slept in railway stations and I have sort of scrounged, couch surfed all around the, uh, all around the, the UK until... Um, and it was pretty depressing. And after my first British Open, I was not sure. And you know, I've been there four months. I wasn't sure whether I could. I mean, I knew I could handle it. I just didn't see if I was going to get any better living that sort of lifestyle and trying to make it. And then I met Bryce Taylor, my um, my coach, and his partner, Ben Marie. And they gave me the opportunity to go and stay at their place. And Bryce coached me. And, you know, that was another, I suppose, lifesaver for me. Yeah, I'd like to talk very much about Bryce in, in a moment. I, there was one story um, I remember you telling one year about being billeted somewhere and you'd won a trophy and uh, in the middle of the night you woke up and couldn't remember where the bathroom was. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? I do. It was actually, um, I'd won the um, South Australian Open and I'd gone from Melbourne to plan the um, Australian Open and I was staying way out in the in the wop wops it seemed and I was staying with a family that didn't have an inside toilet uh -huh. um, and so and uh, I was going to climb out the window but it had those meshing things on it and I couldn't get it out and anyway I'm a bit scared of snakes long story cut a long story short I um, relieved myself in the big rose bowl that I had uh, won the week before uh, and then uh, you know, I covered it over in the morning and carried it out and disposed of it. I've never actually found another decent use for a trophy. So, um, <laughs> you know, at least, uh, so I laugh every time I see now someone wins a rose bowl and I laugh even louder when I see someone drink out of a trophy. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned Bryce there. I mean, what was it about Bryce that made him such a big influence <clears throat> on your game? Well, I think it was the combination of Bryce and Marie, actually. I mean, she saw me playing uh, in my first British Open. I think I lost in the first or second round or whatever. Probably the first round. And she went up to Bryce and said, that young Devoy girl from New Zealand is playing over there. You should come and have a look at her. She's quite good. 
and uh, and we got chatting afterwards and you know I think they sensed that it was pretty hard and they had also sort of been helping Stu Davenport and uh, whatever and um, they said look if I wanted to come back to stay with them next year the offer was there so um, so yeah so it was Bryce's coaching that you know made the huge huge difference but it was also Marie and having that environment where you know I wasn't alone uh, and not only with Bryce there were people there to train with and it was a great club environment and it sort of you know it got me on the right footing I suppose um, it wasn't all smooth sailing. That was my first British Open. The second British Open I went to was my first season being coached with Bryce. And uh, I've always had quite a strong opinion on certain matters. And I must have voiced my opinion very strongly one day before I was about to travel up north to go to the British Open. And he said something, blah, 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 blah. You can go on your own then. And I thought, oh, that can't be serious. So I did. And I went up and I played my first round and they didn't turn up. And... I played my second round and they didn't turn up and I was in the third round and I was playing a quite stroppy English woman called Alison Cummings and we were oh. having, yeah you remember <laughs> both having as much lip giving as much lip to each other um you know both as guilty as each other and mouthing off and doing whatever and I was too loved down and I came off the court and then Bryce just sort of appeared from nowhere. So he'd been there watching. And he said to me, Susan, if you say one more word on court, I'm going to rip your <clears throat> tongue out. Yeah. Um, and you'll never see me again. And uh, I never said another word. And I won and I made my first quarterfinal of the British Open. And whilst I was never an angel on the court, I never, more or less, that was never did that again. So, yeah. The other thing, teaching me a lesson, I think. The other thing, too, I mean, work ethic. I, I, you were always a hard worker. I think that was obvious. But uh, he, I think, was it perfection through repetition was was kind of one of the things he, he he schooled you in that that if you just practiced and practiced and practiced shots, that they would be there for you when the crunch came in a big game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we trained pretty hard, and we spent the first season um, changing my technique on the forehand, which is pretty hard to do. Change technique, you know, when you're older, um, or whenever, you know. Um, but yeah, we trained pretty hard, and it was like that. I mean, our motto was that, um, you know, when I went on that court and closed the door, that, you know, we'd done everything, um, paid so much attention to detail that, barring illness or injury, you know. I was going to win. It wasn't an arrogance or an overconfidence. It was knowing you'd done the work, as you say, um, practice makes perfect. So that, you know, sometimes things did go wrong occasionally, but yeah, that's uh, that's basically what we did. Yeah. And the other thing too is that John, your husband, came onto the scene, a pretty good squash player himself. So I, I guess that meant that, you know, you had a really, really made trading partner. Yeah, yeah. When he first came to England, I mean, you know, he um, threw his job in at uh, in Christchurch and came over and hadn't known each other all that long. So it was, and it was a good training partner. Although we used to always end our training sessions with, you know, competitive games, and I'm <laughs> so competitive and so is he. Uh, and I remember one early on in the piece when we were sort of just getting sorting this out. He was so annoyed at me. He said, right, I'm off. I'm going back to New Zealand. And I had to sort of bar the door and say, I promise, I promise I won't do that again. Okay, I promise. I won't be so gnarly. I won't be so gnarly and competitive. Please stay, please stay. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, you know, he hated 
he hated losing as much as I did. We just used to, there was no such thing as girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever it was, and we played, played for the play till the death. Big breakthrough came in 1984. Uh, you played Lisa Opie in the final of the British Open, the, the, the Wimbledon of squash, really, and you played an immaculate game, but I think probably just as importantly, I think mentally you really wore her down. If I remember some of the shots of, you know, of, of her reaction to certain situations that mentally you were so in the zone and, and I, it looked like in the end she just couldn't deal with it. Yeah, we laugh about that now, Lisa and I. We caught up just a couple of years ago. We had a reunion actually in Melbourne when John was living there with some of the, uh, with Vicky and Liz and um, Lisa and so much pressure on her, you know, she, an English woman hadn't won the British Open for years and years and years, and here she was in the final with, and, and expected to win, you know, so I can understand that now, but yeah, she completely lost the plot, I don't think she thought that I was going to play so well, completely lost the plot, ended up having to apologise to her and gave the fingers and threw a racket out of the court, and um, so yeah, we've watched that a few times in the past little while, well not little while, and laughed at that, but yeah. And, you know, she never went to be, on to beat me in a major. So, um, you know, in a British or world, the only British she won was the one I lost in whatever year that was, 91, I think. Um, and yet she was my most formidable opponent, you know, because she had the game that would that sort of could put me off my stride because she, you know, could put the ball, immaculate touch and, you know, great pace, um, change of pace and all that. But you could never, you know, never get on top of me. It, it, just to sidetrack a little, it's great to hear um, of you catching up with Lisa and you mentioned Liz Irving, who I was always thought was a lovely person and, and also, um, uh, you know, um, Vicky Cardwell, because Vicky was in the early days a very, very feisty customer and that, that was quite a rival. So nice that after all these years you can, you can actually get together and, and enjoy each other's company. Yeah, I think we um, we all got together a couple of years ago and it was 25 years or something and... Um, yeah, I mean, Liz went on to coach Nicole David, who was, uh, you know, um, one of the greatest women squash players ever. And um, so she's still involved. Lisa went on to retrain as an osteopath. And Vicky still coaches and sits and knows in everywhere in Australia's squash that she possibly can. Uh, and has a daughter who plays. So, yeah, I mean, uh, that's the great thing about sport, isn't it? Um, you know, being able to... Well, that's the great thing about technology, Facebook and all those things, is how people actually reconnect. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to go and play in the... I didn't want to go and play, actually. I was just going to go uh, to the World Masters in Poland because I have reconnected with so many people in the last few years and many of them were going there that I thought, you know, it's probably the last time... God, do I have say it in my life? Probably, but you go to a World Masters. You know, it's never something that's really interested me. But I went and watched the World masters games here when they were in Auckland a year or two a couple of years ago and for someone who's always thought masters were people that were had never made it in the big time in the real game you know I thought it was just so fantastic you know people still doing what they love so much regardless of all the snapped Achilles and torn hamstrings and whatever and I you know I was really looking forward to that so um but yeah, yeah, it's 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 good to catch up. Sadly, because we live so far away in New Zealand, it's usually us that have to go and do the catching up. Yeah. That win over Lisa, that was the first of seven, um, uh, or the British Open title seven to follow after that. But I think the following year, um, you, you beat her in Dublin, um, and and a, a really dominant performance through that tournament. I think you probably only dropped 
what one game in the whole tournament, um, and suddenly at 21 years of age, you, you're top of the world, world champion, British Open champion, number one ranked at, at that age. That must have been a great feeling. Yeah, I mean, you don't remember all the specific tournaments. You remember your first. I remember my first British Open. I remember my first World Championship in, in Dublin. Uh, and then you remember the last ones. But, um, yeah, I, I, we hadn't sort of anticipated that I'd win the British Open at 20. It was, the plan was sort of 21, perhaps, or there are. So things, you know, happen a bit quickly. Uh, and then it changes, doesn't it? Because once you're there, you want to stay there, and then it becomes, you know, that much harder. Um, it's true what they say, it's much easier getting to the top than it is staying there. And uh, and then the expectations become, you know, I mean, I think after winning one British Open, two British Open, three British Open, four British Open, people just expected that I was, you know, naturally going to win and that it was easy. Well, it was always 100 times harder the next year than it was the year before. But, um, you know, I sort of thrived on that, really. Um, didn't necessarily mean that it was always got as much thrill out of the sixth as you do the fifth or the seventh or whatever, or certainly the first. Um, and in fact, for me, you know, I, um, in fact, John said it, and someone said it yesterday to me, something, God, you hated losing. And I said, yeah. Um, looking back now, I'm probably a bit obsessive around that, um, putting it into reality. But yeah, that was, that was just who I was. Bryce used to talk about it a bit. I, I think he said that at a big tournament, you'd get into a bit of a zone that he called running scared. That do, do you think sometimes you were driven as much by a fear of losing, if not more, than your desire to win? Yeah, probably. I probably would have been a sports psychologist's nightmare, actually, because, you know, they say the greatest, the most debilitating factor for a sportsman is the fear of losing, you know. Um, but that's really what... Um, it wasn't a fear of losing wasn't what motivated me to train hard and because I loved winning, but I couldn't no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't put that worry and anxiety of losing uh, out of my mind. And you know, at the end of the day, the world doesn't stop spinning on its axis and the sun doesn't rise when you lose. Um, but unfortunately, that's what I felt like every time I did yeah, lose. Yeah. So, you know, lucky I didn't do it very often. <laughs> yeah. Um, I suppose the other uh, downside, I suppose, of playing like that is that the emotion that you feel when you do win. I mean, sometimes was it more relief than exultation at having won uh, that you'd sort of kind of slump exhausted in the, in the, in the corner? Thank goodness that's over. Um, w w is that a fair comment to make about how you yeah. felt? Yeah, um, but John was great because he'd always make an effort, you know, um, make sure that we celebrated the achievement, you know, that it didn't just... Um, but, you know, for me, it was sort of like another day at the office, really, because, you know, you'd have a week off or two weeks off and you'd be back playing the next tournament. Um, and whilst not every tournament felt like a British Open or a World Championship, um, every game I always felt like I had to win. Uh, and that was really why I retired, probably, you know, not young, but retiring at 28 or 29 or whatever I was is particularly young these days. Um, and if someone had said to me, well, Susan, in five years' time, you're going to have four sons, yeah. well, I would have been playing squash for at least another couple of years and ended up <laughs> having two. <laughs> um, as you became successful, particularly in the UK, um, there was a bit of a feud developed with the, the, the British press. Um, and what kind of sparked that? Um, because I, I think 
you know, at, at times they, they were pretty tough on you, weren't they? Yeah, I probably didn't help myself looking back now. And of course, at the time, I would never have thought that. But, you know, that's what happens when you get older and you look back at things. Um, you know, I generally would react to everything they did, said, whatever. Um, and they were particularly parochial around, you know, having a British champion, particularly a, an English girl when the British Open, of course, that they would. And I think what happened, the first thing that sparked off was someone, I can't remember who exactly was, I better not say it in case I've got it wrong, uh, said something that was completely and utterly you know a lie you know um and you know when challenge refused to back out and then you know i thought at 21 or whatever that i could you know whatever i said that you know the press would of course offer me an apology or do whatever and but it was a really good lesson because virtually from then on i never read anything about me good bad or indifferent and when i took the role as race relations commissioner after reading some of the things about me, I took the same philosophy. And not that I was trying to ignore what was happening in my job as the commissioner, but I had good people around me to tell them if I needed to. But in terms of people commenting or passing opinion or doing whatever, and, you know, it's a really good thing to to do, to make sure that you don't... God, imagine I would have been a cop case if at 21 they had social media and people were calling yeah. me on whatever. Yeah. So, you know, I was lucky in that regard. But, yeah, it taught me a valuable lesson that, um, you know, it's just one person's opinion. And um, if you don't let it affect you, then, well, you shouldn't let it affect you because it's not important. I think one of the themes that they had was that um, that you perhaps weren't as flashy as Lemoynian or one of the, one or two of those other players and that, that your success was more due to your mental toughness, your efficiency, your superb fitness. Um, did you feel there was any truth to that or were they just getting salty because you were beating their players all the time? Um, well, you know, I, um, you know, I technically, I would say I was probably as best or better, as good as anyone else, probably better actually. But they were right, you know, I wasn't showy and flashy. I didn't have the um, panache and flair of Lemoynian or, you know, or, or, or even Opie for that matter. Um, but I also didn't hit the ball in the tin as often as they did. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, you know, sometimes because of those nerves and that fear of losing, I didn't sometimes allow myself to play those shots. I mean, you know, I, I often think how, how would I adapt, have to adapt now to the new game? Because the new game is played differently. It's not just, you know, five minute rallies up and down the walls. There was a lot of going short. It wasn't that I couldn't do it. It's just that I didn't do it. You know, I didn't hit the neck and yet I could hit the neck. So I played very attritional squash. If that's, you know, because that's how I learned to, to, to win and whatever. So, yeah, but, you know, it did get up my nose that they never really gave me the credit that I deserve. But, <laughs> must have been great to be able to come back and play a world championship in New Zealand. Um, and, and that was a, a fantastic time for, for sport in New Zealand, the late 80s. And to be part of that by winning the, the Honda New Zealand Open in, in front of, you know, your own family, friends, country, country people, that must have been one of the, the great moments of your career. Yeah, I loved, always loved playing at home. And as you say, in those days, the New Zealand Open was a big deal. And then in 87, when we yeah. the world's here, um, I laugh at that now at the YMCA and Pitt Street or wherever it was. And <laughs> there was no bar. And so my mum and dad in particular, you know, and others like having their bottles of beer in the boot of the car. 
I'm training for the most important tournament of life, getting ready. I'm walking through the car park and there they are all slugging it back. <laughs> you know, they couldn't, it's not like Eden Park. It's not like they couldn't give it up for a game of squash. It takes an hour or so. They couldn't even give it up for them. Um, but, yeah, no, that was um, fantastic. And then having the teams here and that was really good. And, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I can't even see us getting back to those days, although we're hoping to host the Men's World's uh, teams event here in uh, Tauranga uh, at the end of next year, all going well. In those days, the, the world champs only came around every second year. Um, you could have won twice as many world titles if it had been every year like it is now. Yeah, well, it sort of irks me a little bit when they say four-time world champion and, you know, Nicole David might be eight or whatever. I say, yeah, well, they're only two years when I played. So. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's changed, whereas the world championships now are more important than squash than the British Open. So, yeah. You know, it's reversed a little bit, and um, you know, those things change, and it is what it is. It makes no difference now with how many world championships I've actually won, really. Yeah, 1989, uh, you went to Holland, but that year you had kind of put your preparation almost on hold a little bit because you decided to walk the length of New Zealand to raise money and awareness for, for muscular dystrophy. I mean, it was a, a hell of a thing to take on. Yeah, I'm not quite sure because your memory sort of, you know, is not as vivid as it should be as to why I decided. To, well, I knew why I decided to do it. Um, it seems a real ridiculous thing to do in the middle of, right in the middle of your career. But, um, and you couldn't say it at the time, but it wasn't the ideal preparation for the Worlds in 1989. You know, I mean, I was probably a little underdone. Walking doesn't exactly encourage your fast twitch muscles too much. Um, but in saying that, you know, I think uh, it was probably the best thing, one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Um, and I, you know, find it really hard to believe I actually did that, you know, when I yeah. I think now. Um, couldn't do it now, the amount of traffic and, you know, in those days there were no EFPOS machines or whatever, and, you know, that was $500,000 in donations and hard, cold cash, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I believe that if I hadn't done that, I would have gone on to win the Worlds in 89, but I didn't. Um, but, yeah, it was a great, you know, it's, it's a relentless thing being a sports professional. And I think taking that time off and doing something completely different, bearing in mind I left school and played squash from the age of 17, and I've been playing squash since I was, you know, knee-high to a grass over, I think it gave me a different perspective on life. Um, and you know, and changed my approach. And losing an '89 really changed my approach too, in some ways. You know, um, just made me work bloody hard, and no one was going to ever make me lose again. <laughs> so yeah, but you know, I did have worse years than that. '91 was pretty bad, and I lost the British Open unexpectedly. And my dad had a stroke, and you know, a miscarriage. That was funny because I didn't even know that I was pregnant, you know, and I was about to play in the New Zealand Open. Um, and that was really, you know, I think uh, the catalyst for wanting to finish in 92 and make sure that uh, I did it properly and left no stone unturned, and that's what I was able to do. I remember 91 distinctly. It was Sue Wright that, that beat you in the quarterfinals. It was such a shock to see you bowing out of the tournament on a, on a Saturday afternoon and not playing the final on Friday. But uh, if I, I remember rightly, 
you never made any excuse. I think this was the great opportunity of your detractors in the British press and Quillins and, and that that crowd, and and you you, you didn't give them anything, uh, nothing bitter. It was all you know that that must have been almost as much of a challenge as playing on the court sometimes. You go up there, front up to these guys, and not give them one sour note to write about in, in terms of a reaction to losing. Yeah, well, I think you know I hope that I um, could do, did do that all the time. I mean, you can't ever take away from your opponent um, and whilst you want to deep down you must have a whole lot of excuses um, you know, you're not much of a person if you and who wanted to give them the satisfaction of being showing that you you know sour grapes uh, but it was tough it was really tough it took a lot to um, you know come back from um, you know, you're lucky you didn't live in the same house as me for a while. Poor old John. <laughs> he copped it for a while because, you know, it has to be someone else's fault. Um, and it just led to that whole series of a really bad year. Um, you know, it was like the anus horribilis, really, and I couldn't quite uh, work out what had all gone wrong. But, you know, those were the, that was when John was establishing, a, you know, his own job and life here for us up to squash. I'd been in the UK on my own for, you know, four months or something, and then everything just seemed to, you know, turn to custard as, well, I think that's the mark of a true champion when you face something, a whole lot of things, not just sporting, but personal and whatever, and, you know, that, that set you back and then you have the opportunity to go on and, and I mean, that's why, you know, 1992 was just a dream come true for me and, and, the, and the right time to get out. Yeah, I mean, you came back, won the British Open, then the Worlds were in Canada that year. Um, by this time, Michelle Martin of Australia, who, like yourself, had older brothers who were very good squash players, and she'd become quite a fierce rival. So it must have been very satisfying. I think you beat her not only in the in the individual final, but I think you beat her in the, the, the team's match as well. So a great note to, to bow out on. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I um, I played pretty well and pretty convincing and there was a lot of talk that Michelle was, you know, on her way and this was her tournament and whatever. And, you know, I just said to John on the morning of the final that, you know, win, lose or draw, I was going to retire and we took a big gulp. Um, and I didn't retire because I didn't, I just didn't enjoy the same. I mean, to be as good as I was, I had to train pretty, oh, well, I thought I had to train as hard as, harder than everyone else and don't and I enjoyed training as much as I enjoyed competing but I got to that stage where I, you know I didn't I didn't think I could do it anymore and so yeah mm. it, was, it was a perfect ending for um, for me and unbeknownst to me I was actually pregnant at the time so it was meant to be yeah well and as you say four boys uh, you know quite quick succession and they've all gone on and you know, achieved in, in sport as well. It must make you feel very proud. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they're still um, still trying to make their way. Um, the others are all, you know, they'll, they're not going to be competitive. I mean, my youngest was a good squash player and, you know, he went to college on a squash scholarship in the States and, you know, he said, Mum, when you get your head around that I'm not going to be a world champion or the fact that I don't even want to be a world champion, then we'll have it all sorted. And that's, you know, quite good advice from an 18-year-old or whatever. Um, but I love, I so much love watching them play sport. It doesn't matter what it is. I've spent hours and hours and hours on the side of cricket pitches and, you know, soccer and rugby fields and 
you know, the sad thing is they don't want to play golf with their mother because I'm not very good. Or, um, and I love, you know, having a son in a different sport has been great, you know, going off to watch him run. You know, the race is always at the same time that they say it is. It always, you know, never lasts more than four or five minutes. You don't have to record the afterwards. You don't get told off by someone on the court, you know. No one sort of... Um, and, yeah, so it's been, you know, and I... As I get older and they get older, I know that those opportunities are few and far between now. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I remember running into you once, I think we might have been on a plane trip somewhere, you told me a great story about the day you, you had some uh, business with Ed Hillary and you took a couple of boys round to meet him and they got into a conversation, the two boys, about why Ed Hillary was famous. Do you remember that? Yeah, I used to go around, I went round to get Sermon to sign some $5 notes because, you know, I used to get asked for memorabilia and I'd run out of frilly knickers and squash balls and whatever, so I used to get a $5 note and I'd sign it and I'd get Sered to sign it, put it in a little Briscoe's frame and give it to the kindergarten with a rotary club or whatever. And on this occasion, we went down, I was telling the boys the importance of who we were going to see and that they would stay in the car at all costs or chop their legs off. Um, but Sered came out and invited them in. And as we were leaving, they were very well, they were very well behaved. But as we were leaving, my eldest son, who was pretty young, said, "Oh, I said, what do you say?" And they, I thought he was going to say, "Thank you for having me." And he said, "Oh, you must be pretty rich for an old fella." And he said, "Oh, why is that?" And he said, "Because you got your face on all, all the five-dollar notes." And then my other son piped up and said, "Yeah, my mother said you're famous because you climbed Mount Eden." <laughs> so. Uh, I thought out of the mouths of babes. In fact, my children provided me with lots of very interesting and funny stories. And long may that continue. Yeah, yeah. Um, as well as involvement with Sarita, of course, um, very much involved with the, the Halberg uh, Foundation. And, and one, one of the jobs that that involved was you had to act as a facilitator or would it be more appropriate to say a referee for some of the judging uh, discussions that went on. I mean, you know, talk about challenges. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was a judge too at one stage. Um, and that's a really, really difficult job. Um, and hence why I got off the judging panel because, you know, it's like judging apples and oranges, you know. Um, and I still laugh because I think I heard someone commentating this year, or, or not commentating, but making commentary on the results, you know, and there was always the, the argument that the sports genos knew best, you know, because they had all the information and what would other sports people know and they would have their own bias to whatever. And I thought the only winners here really um, is if you might not agree with the outcome, but if you agree with the process, then um, mm. it will be all right. But, you know, at the end of the day, there have been plenty of people who I think should have won the Halberd Award uh, who didn't. And there are plenty of people who have won the Halberd Award who shouldn't have. But I don't know any sports person in New Zealand that plays sports that they can win the Halberd Award. It's a bit yeah. of a bonus and it's the icing on the cake. And they have so much respect for Samari and the work that the, the foundation yeah. has done that everybody else in the world is generally worried about it, but not the people concerned or the sports people themselves. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's how I look at it. The, the only thing I'd sort of say about, the, you know, the process was that, and I was part of it for a couple of fact, I remember one year you were um, facilitating it and, and we got into it. There was a quite a, a, a row over whether or Peter not... Peter Williams, was it? Uh, no, I don't think Peter was there. I think uh, 
Brendan Telfer was part of it. Right. Uh, Joseph Romanos, Keith, myself, I was on the other side of the argument. The argument was whether or not Russell Coots should oh, be, yes. uh, was whether he should be eligible to be sports person of the year. And some people felt that absolutely others thought, no, he, you know, I won't go into why, yeah. but at least we had that argument. And that, that's what worries me a little bit. That's the only thing that worries me about the process now is that it's all secret ballot. You don't get people in a room discussing it. And, and that's where it could fall down. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I agree too. I think there should be some form of face-to-face um, -face discussion. You know, I think that, you know, often people have a differing point of view that you might not agree with, but unless you hear about that point of view, and there are things that you learn in that process that you wouldn't have known about unless you are listening to someone else discuss their area of expertise or whatever. Um, it'd be hard getting a word in with uh, Brendan Telfer and Joseph Romano, wouldn't it? <laughs> Oh yeah, that was it was uh, it was an interesting day, that's for sure. But as I say, at least we had the debate. Um, then perhaps on to what might be the toughest role of your life, uh, that of uh, race relations conciliator, working with the Human Rights Commission. Why would you take on a job when you know that no matter how fair, how logical, how considered you are, and what you say, that someone is going to string you up? Why? Why? Why put yourself through that? Well, when I sought wise counsel about whether I should take the job, a very good friend of mine said, who, you know, advises me quite honestly, said, well, Susan, you know this job's not for faint-hearted, don't you? And um, I said, that's all right, I'm not faint-hearted. <laughs> um, I didn't expect at all what happened at the very beginning. You know, I knew there would be opposition or, you know, but not quite the sort of vitriolic, vehement attack on me from all sorts of quarters. I mean, they hadn't even given me a chance to muck it up, actually. Um, you know, which is interesting, and you ask yourself why, you know, I mean, it's it's probably a number of reasons, because people only had pigeonholed me and seen me only as a squash player or a sports jock or whatever. Unbeknownst then, you know, I've been retired for 20 odd years, and I've done a whole lot of other things that made me perfectly capable, um, and equally qualified as other people that, you know, were mentioned for the role. Um, but interesting, isn't it, that, you know, I, um, I started on that, so it was really good, actually, it's, it was you know, I, I thought, well, this is it probably couldn't get any worse than this. And, you know, more or less it didn't. So it prepared me well for a job that was pretty polarizing and, um, you know, at times pretty difficult. Uh, but having said that, what people see is only the parts and the commentary and the things in the media. They don't see the, uh, the other parts of the role, which, you know, I mean, I'd never... I didn't at the end stand up and say, well, I did this, 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 and this, but we did a hell of a lot of good things um, on very limited resources. You, One single person's not responsible for race relations in New Zealand, or I can't stop everyone being racist either. Um, but I thought, ironically, given who I was, we brought a different sort of profile to the role, you know, than pre perhaps previously other people had. And the fact that I was, you know, a Pākehā and a white and a woman uh, it meant a whole, a whole different audience that probably needed to listen um, uh, did. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a difficult role. And the Human Rights Commission is an unusual organisation, and I can say that now, uh, because um, the reality is that people have always said the Commission's pretty toothless, and they're probably pretty right. Um, because, you know, when you go to the UN and you make the governments, you know, you make the reports on certain issues in New Zealand and governments, regardless of who they are, pay no heed to any of the recommendations that come out of the UN. You wonder if, 
what sort of power does um, you know organisations like the Commission hold? But the one thing that you know you have to be of the Commissioner is you have to be courageous and bold, and you have to hold people to account. And you know, at least I can say I did that, even yep. even in sometimes difficult circumstances. But um, yeah. Uh, that's why now, when I'm looking for a new job, I'm looking for something rather leisurely, <laughs> and, and non-stressful, and local, and um, part-time, and um, I was going to say includes travel. Well, that's out of the so yeah. Yeah. But it was a great opportunity. I mean, I would never. I mean, it was tough. It was really hard. Um, you know, it's a sort of twenty-four-seven job. You know, you, you're not working in the office and doing whatever you go. You go to the opening of an envelope, you know, and I ate more dumplings and curries and, but I met some amazing people and, you know, amazing New Zealanders from all walks of life and all ethnicities. And, you know, we've got a lot of work to do, um, but we've also got some pretty great things about our country. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I would like to get your, your views on just the state of it in, in New Zealand. I mean, I think a lot of people in New Zealand, we think, oh, you know, it's it's not perfect, but hey, we're better than Australia or we're better than the US. With, you know, what I mean, how do you see the state of race relations in New Zealand? Uh, and and you know, you where know, we've come. We shouldn't, we shouldn't sort of set our bar so low that we think we're better than Australia or, <laughs> or America because, you know, I lived, I lived in Australia for nearly a year when John was over there quite recently. Um, and, you know, incredibly racist and they're not afraid to say so either um and the treatment of their indigenous people is you know hard to believe that that's even happening in this day and age so um you know we're lucky we're lucky we at least have a treaty uh, but we have a long way to go to you know fully honor the obligations of that uh, and that'll only come through education and i think we have another generation to go before you know all New Zealanders are educated and informed about, you know, our founding document. Um, and we're we're a multicultural society, one of the most diverse countries in the world now, and yet we haven't sorted out our own biculturalism. So, you know, we've got still a lot of work to get to do. Um, and, you know, where I say it's not perfect, um, but you will never, even though it would be aspirational, unfortunately, you'll never eradicate, eradicate or eliminate uh, racism, but I think that you know, for years they've called for a national, national, you know, a national plan or a strategy against racism, and lots of people doing really good stuff. But there's no sort of coordinated effort. Um, but yeah, I think you'll see an incredible change within, um, if not already, you know, where Maori won't need party anymore to be able to make decisions and do things. So. Yeah. You know, I think that that's if we're not there now, we are we, we're going to be very soon. Um, and the balance will shift, and you know, and then perhaps Parkia will have to learn to understand what real partnership means and looks like. Yeah, did it change you being in that role? I mean, you know, people go into that role hoping that they could be part of positive change, but it did it did it change you in any way? Um, change me. Uh, yeah, I thought I, I think I lost a high level of confidence. You know, I think I came away at the end of it feeling a bit uh, beaten up. Um, you know, uh, often for valid, often for valid reasons, often for not. 
uh, the personal attacks. I mean, that's when you talk about the social media and the trolls and all that. Um, you know, the death threats, the attacks on you physically, the stuff being sent to your house. I mean, I never would envisage that people would become so, and that's why I know that people are racist. Uh, not not only are they racist, they're also very nasty. Um, so that the personal stuff, that really took a toll, much more so than I fully appreciated until I actually left. And, you know, there were a whole lot of things that went on internally within the commission, too, which I tried to fight tooth and nail. I mean, I came away thinking, you know, at the end of the day, I'm still a little terrier who fights for the underdog. You know, I've always been doing that all my life, and that's probably never going to change. So, um, but, yeah, no, I, um, yeah, it, 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 it was tough. Yeah. And I look at, you know, the new Race Relations Commissioner, who's a really good guy from a Gisborne, you know, the former mayor, Ming Fu, and I thought, oh, you know, he waltzed in there with the largest pokery ever seen in the history of man, and there's been no criticism and no whatever. And I mean, it's like, why is that? You know, and is it because, you know, he can speak to our Māori, or is it because he's comes from a Chinese background or whatever? Uh, and that's nothing against Ming, I think he's fantastic. But the reality is, people should judge people on the job and the work that they do. You know, not the preconceived ideas they have of yeah. and why they, you know, and that's, uh, you know, and that's just this part and parcel of it, really. Yeah. Um, so you've had a chance now to step back, breathe, enjoy life, um, enjoy, you know, your your family. Uh, just in terms of your sporting interests, uh, you, you mentioned you you know play a bit of golf. I know you got into to running and, and, and walking a lot, um, and the squash racket. You. I actually, I actually don't play any golf. That's just that was. I don't know why I said that because that's actually not true. Uh, I still do a lot of walking, and I try and do a little bit of running. But my running looks like fast walking. Uh, <laughs> I don't play any squash, uh, although I go down and you know I have a hit around with some of the members, uh, and I voluntarily take a boot camp a couple of mornings a week because some of the ladies at the squash club we have a lot of laugh. They weren't too successful in lockdown on the Zoom. Um, I only found out that the other day that they all put their cameras or, or their laptops or whatever cameras away so I couldn't see them. So I just think when I saw the legs going up that they were doing all the exercises, but they didn't. Um, yeah, so I still like being active, of course. Um, we were supposed to go and walk the Humperage the day of the lockdown. So, you know, um, we were supposed to go and see the Book of Mormon. We were going to see the, and do all those sorts of things. Um, so I, I really think the world will be quite different yeah. um, coming out the other side and, you know, who knows. How do you think New Zealand's responded to this challenge that we've faced um, as, a, as a nation? Oh, I think it's been, um, the leadership shown by our Prime Minister has been phenomenal. You know, I think um, she was damned if she did and damned if she didn't. There was never going to be, there was always going to be someone disagreed. I have to say I was delighted when we went to level two. I thought, you know, um, no one could possibly stay it longer. But um, yeah, I think uh, from a health perspective and looking after the well health and wellness of New Zealanders, it was handled um, admirably. I mean, I know because I've got a son living in America at the moment. And, you know, I had a son that got out of New York just in time and most of his friends and their families have all been affected um, some disastrously by by COVID, so yeah. Uh, as I said, who knows from here? I mean, you'd quite like to work from home for the rest of your life. 
I just quite sure. like I just quite like to work. So if there's anyone out there who has any sort of really cruisy part time jobs going in Tauranga, um, you know, I can advertise this. But yeah, um, I think there's going to be, you know, I, we're a bit glad, but I do feel very concerned for a whole lot of New Zealanders who perhaps have lost their jobs or will lose their jobs, and it was harder to get by before. Imagine what it's going to be like in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, finally, Susan, do you allow yourself now that you've, you're removed from your career as uh, you know a squash professional, do you allow yourself sometimes to sit back and, and I don't know, maybe open up some photos or, or, or look back at some trophies and what have you and, and allow yourself some moments of satisfaction for what you've achieved? No, never. Why not? Um, well, we moved house so many times in our early days that I gave most of my trophies to the Hall of Fame in Dunedin. Yeah. Um, and I've never been there. Um, and every time we move, I try and throw out a few more boxes of programs or photos or tickets, and John gets them out of the uh, out of the big jumbo bin and puts them back in. And they go from one garage to the next garage to the next garage to the next garage. Um, and no. And we've got piles and piles and piles and piles and piles of VHS videos. So whoever looks at a, what do you play a VHS video on? <laughs> I think my children have ever seen me play squash or ever seen, you wouldn't find a trophy or a picture or a photo. Um, that's not because I don't, um, you know, I don't need to have a shrine or I don't have a pool room or whatever you do. But, um, yeah, it's just not part of who I am, you know, I carry it, I carry it around the bits I can remember. And thankfully for us, Tony, there's some things that we shouldn't remember. <laughs> 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 Play up all the time. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. I think it's I think it's the people you meet and the places you went and the experiences you had um, and that you remember most. And you know, chatting to someone like you who's who has been there and seen me at a yeah. bit in the world yeah. probably has an understanding is is that's equally as fun as looking through a scrapbook or yeah, yeah. You know, doing whatever. Oh, good, yeah. to know, good to know some of us are still alive. Yeah. Well, look, I, you know, I was I was privileged. I had a you know seat fairly close to the action for a few years there now, and and, and they're great memories, Susan. And yeah. uh, we're very grateful for you to share your, your story with us. It's been an honour and a privilege to be able to talk to you. Not just a great New Zealand sports person, but a great New Zealand Dame Susan Devoy. Thank you very much. Thank you.